journalist, broadcast journalist, and author. She graduated from Kami and English Literature. When she's not studying or presenting radio TV shows, which doesn't happen often, she reads, exten- she reads extensively and runs marathons. Still? Still relevant? Uh, you see, I was about to say, don't say that publicly <laughs> because it's been a while. <laughs> uh, Reddy won the prestigious uh, Sunday Times Alan Payton Award in 2013 for a runaway debut success, Endings and Beginnings. So, Reedy, you always choose these easy topics. <laughs> Why did you choose to re- write a book about the life of Fisikile Ntsukela Kutsuaya? You know, it was a very easy decision to make because I, I often wondered what had happened to her and I was very uncomfortable to be living in a society that just had allowed what happened to her to happen. And by that I mean many of us, or if not all of us, we're not in the ANC, we don't have political power. But I think there's so many other areas of influence, other areas of activism that we could have tapped into. Um, I was very determined that she mustn't be forgotten. I felt that she represented something very frightening about our society. And I just wanted us to be reminded of what had happened to that young woman and her mom. And I know there have been some critics of the book who said I timed it deliberately to coincide with the ANC conference. I mean, that's a lot of rubbish. We won't waste energy (laughs) on that. But now that it happened that way, I'm actually quite glad because I felt that I managed as a South African citizen, as a woman, to articulate a final rebuke to Jacob Zuma before he left. So now that it coincided with... um, uh, you know, the ANC conference, I'm glad. It was a great accident of history. Yeah. Tell us a bit about the timeline, because I was actually shocked to read in your book, I didn't know this, that she literally almost, I think the day after the trial ended, uh, she and her mum Beauty left for the Netherlands. Um, when did you enter their lives again? Did you keep track of her, or was it only a few years later when you started to look for her again? I think he knows the answer to that because he spends his life following people and tracking them even when he doesn't speak to them. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the next day they were on a flight to Amsterdam and the people who helped them uh, secure visas, they say the embassy was just amazing. They didn't ask too many questions. They were following the trial and they just helped them with everything. So Adran, yes, I did have some people who were connected. I'd never met her, but I knew where she was all the time. When she left the Netherlands, she went to Botswana, and then it was Zimbabwe, then Tanzania. Um, You know, she just moved around. Mm. And I always kept track of her. Sometimes I'll lose track of her, but I had a general idea of where she was. But I'd heard from so many people that she was petrified. She was so scared. The fear never left her. Um, and so I was very careful. I thought about how I could approach her because if I were her, putting myself in her shoes, some journalist from South Africa, the country that, has lit- that had literally spat me out, phones me and say, I want to speak to you to write a book, I'd say no. Mm. So I, I, I instinctively knew to just hold back and just watch her. Mm. And I trusted that the moment would present itself and it did. Let's, let's talk a bit about the relationship between her family and Jacob Zuma. I didn't know it was that close. Um, I mean, tell us about her father, Mandla Judson Kutsuai, mm. who was, was supposed to be one of those ANC legendary names that we're all supposed to know. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, throughout the trial, and you know what, how it works, you can't put every word in a book. There's a lot that gets edited out. But I think that I did 
try to demonstrate how close the families actually were. And I hope that it does come across the lengths to which Zuma went to both denounce and diminish the strength of the relationship. I mean, he kept saying during the trial that, well, I don't see why she would regard me as a father figure and then contradict himself and say I was a very close friend of her father's. And from a cultural point of view, and I'm, I know African culture is dynamic, there isn't one way of doing things, but I'm sure many of you also come from a background or a cultural uh, milieu that tells you that your father's closest friend is a, parent, is a, is a father figure. And even more so during exile, during any literature written on exile, you know that the, the children were brought up by the village, as it were, because parents would go on these secret missions and just leave their children. So the auntie next door would take care of your children. So Zuma knew that she was right to consider him um, a father figure. But Justin Kuzoyo was quite senior. I must say, I also didn't, when, when I read in the papers that there were comrades, I thought everybody was everybody's <laughs> comrade. But sitting down with people like yeah. Ivan Pile, yeah. uh, people like uh, Zuelim Kiz, I didn't sit down with Zueli, but I know he's spoken about uh, uh, Justin Kuzoyo. Kuzoyo. I don't know how many of you remember Penuel Maduna. He was a former mm. minister of minerals affairs. And then when I looked through the archives and the photographs and saw the people who were at Justin Kuzoyo's funeral, he died, of course, in a car accident. I mean, very senior luminaries of, of the ANC, your Alfred Nzo, our first uh, uh, minister of foreign affairs in a democratic South Africa. I mean, so senior was he that uh, Robert Mugabe, although... Um, <laughs> senior politically, As we, we would talk say the about moral leadership later, but Robert Mugabe sent a, a personal letter to the ANC and to Oar Tambo himself because he knew the void that the death of Judson Kuzwayo would leave uh, on the ANC and Tambo responded likewise. But Jackson, Judson Kuzwayo and Jacob Zuma spent a lot of time together. Yeah. And the unit was actually called the MJK yes. unit, the so, unit that Jacob Zuma led. The irony of it, you go and you work with someone in exile, and by the way, they spent 10 years on, on Robben Island together before they were in exile. I don't know, but if I were isolated in a prison, everybody would be a brother or a sister. So they were in Robben Island for 10 years together, but after that, and that's very significant, there was a Mkonto Esizo unit that was named after Judson Kuzwayo when he died. So many people lost their lives in the fight against apartheid, but they didn't have they didn't all have an MK unit named after mm. them. It was named after him and it was led by Jacob, Jacob Zuma. Zuma. How close, how much closer can you can get? You get? Yeah. Um, really, when I, when I read your, your absolutely gripping book, I experienced lots of emotions. I was angry at the people, the system that failed Fisikila time after time. Mm. I was incredibly sad about the pain one woman had to endure. Mm. I was disillusioned with the selective morality of the ANC in exile. Yeah. But above all, I kept wondering, how did we let this happen to Fezekile Kuzwa? Um, is this also a question that haunted you while you were researching and writing the book? Mm -hmm. it, it, yeah, that's, that's exactly why I sought her out, because I felt that I should have expressed some solidarity. I mean, I'd written um, columns for the City Press, I'd spoken on the radio about it, but it didn't feel like I'd done enough. Uh, I was agitated. I, I didn't know how to express my own outrage, but also to say, that's not what I stand for. So perhaps in a way, I wanted to express that in the book, to say we're better than this. And to also 
mourn the loss of innocence in childhood because that's what happened to her. I felt that even when she was in exile, even though I was afraid of overwhelming and intimidating her, I could have maybe reached out an, a letter of compassion or affection to say, we think about you, we admire your, your, your courage and so on. And I also felt that uh, many South Africans should have expressed some solidarity given the endemic uh, sexual violence in our society and the burden of silence that so many victims, women and children uh, carry. I do feel that she opened the door somehow, but I don't think she knew how big that moment was. I don't think she knew that taking on power was something much bigger than her fighting for herself, but it told other victims and survivors that you too uh, can do that. So I did want to honor her, and I didn't want, I didn't want, I did want to express my regret at the country not nourishing her enough. Enough. It was it was quite shocking again reading what happened, especially during the rape trial and the absolute abuse of state apparatus to undermine. Um, the prosecution's case and her case in that trial. And I kept on wondering while I read, was reading the book, you know, we often say now after Jacob Zuma has, has left power that it was due to civil society, due to journalists, due to, due to the judiciary that stat stood firm um, in the eye of all the adversary, of all the corruption that went on. But seldom in these discussions do we talk about Kwesi mm. and about the rape trial mm. and about the abuse of system there. And I've been wondering... Had this happened 10 years later, would there have been a KSAC or a Freedom Under Law or a Section 27 that would have stood up, could have intervened, could have asked for the judge from the Mavis recusal mm. um, had it happened? Mm. Uh, that's, that's a very important question, Adrian, because it forces us to confront ourselves as society. There could have been all those things that you highlight, but they were not there because I don't think we are a society that... I think we're overwhelmed by the extent of sexual violence. Every single day, there's a case. How many of them do you take up? It's exhausting. And obviously, we're quite careful about um, declaring someone guilty before the trial is, is, is over. But I do think that even if it had happened now, women who come to the system for support don't get the support that they desire. I do think that as a society, we are complacent. Our institutions are not working optimally. The kind of treatment that is meted out, never mind Jacob Zuma, just us as a society, the kind of treatment that is meted out to victims of sexual violence tells me that even if this had happened 10 years later, there would still have been the same reaction. And I do blame us as a society, but at the same time, I have compassion for us because it is overwhelming. Even on the radio, there are days where I thought, I don't want to deal with this today. But if today I don't want to deal with it, what happens to that woman or child who's reporting a rape? So my answer to your question is, there is a lot of activism around sexual violence, but I don't think we know what to do with it. I don't think we know how to reconscientize or re-socialize South African men I think the violence in everyday acts, whether it's road rage or whatever it is, is so palpable and so debilitating that we don't have the answers. So I think the same type of reaction would, um, would have happened. And it's probably easier, I mean, holding up a mirror to our own industry, it's probably easier to write about state capture in the form of rands and cents 
than in the form of sexual violence. It is because you see, when it comes to sexual violence, it wasn't just Zuma who was mm. on trial and guilty. It's masculinity in South Africa. It is everyone, everyone, men or women, who asks what was she wearing. It's everyone who's ever said, uh, why was she walking alone at night? Why is she hanging around with a group of boys? It's everyone who's ever made a sexist remark or defended a sexist remark. So I'm saying that Zuma was on trial, but South African men, I think, were on trial. Patriarchal women, because I think the ANC Women's League has helped me reflect on who's patriarchal in society, what does that mean? And they are the biggest defenders. In fact, um, in one workshop that I attended, some NGOs were saying they are working in Toyando in, um, in we don't have Venda anymore. What, Limpopo. Toyando, Limpopo, I'm sorry, Limpopo. They're working in Toyando and there are a lot of chiefs. There's respect for culture and people defer to authority. And they were saying they're more scared of the Minister of Women than they are of the chiefs. That the chiefs understand gender equality far more than a woman minister. So what I'm saying is, Jacob Zuma was always going to get away with it. Maybe not in court, that could have gone either way. But in the eyes of society, he was always going to get away with it because we seem to have an appetite and a tolerance for men who behave badly as a society. I'm getting to the anti-women's league a bit later, but I first want us to go back to exile again. Mm. So this topic of sexual abuse in exile is not a very spoken about topic. It mm. seems like something we have parked, and the only time people speak about it, unfortunately, is when Afri Forum makes it their mission in life. I want to just read a passage from our book, from your book, uh, our book. Yeah, come That sounded cool. <laughs> from your book. Um, when you write about Fizikile's uh, uh, time in, in exile, um, after, after you've, you've revealed that she was, she was raped um, as a child in exile three times. And, and I quote from your book. The uncles who were principled enough to fight a noble fight against an oppressive racist system lack the morality to appreciate the gravity of their violation of a little girl. To fight an evil system, surely one must have a sense of justice, not when it comes to women and children's bodies. The war against apartheid fought across women's bodies on different fronts. Fizikile should have been safe in the small world called exile, populated ostensibly by those who had a common cause and were one another's family. Fizikile's story is their story. Mm. Mm. And you also write and remark that the struggle was friendlier to men than to women. Mm. Why is this such a no-go topic? Hmm. You reminded me of um, the DA tried to put the spotlight on sexual violence, and I don't think they were sincere, by the way. It's because uh, someone said something somewhere. They were trying to score political mm. points. And even AfriForum, I don't trust that it's because they're genuinely concerned about what happened to women and children uh, in exile, because they should be equally concerned about what happened to men and women in apartheid police cells. Absolutely. There was a lot of rape there as well. There was a, a lot of sexual abuse of men and women, flat plus as well. There are all sorts of horrific stories from there. So if they were genuinely concerned about that, they would go that far. But I remember when the DA first raised this, the NC Women's League's just you've got to laugh, it's so pathetic. The NC Women's League's response was, the DA must leave us alone, we'll deal with our own cases of sexual violence. Like, are you listening to yourself? You, 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 taking ownership of this as though it's something to be proud of. So something that is so 
violent and endemic in our society was used to score political points. Be that as it may, there is a death of principle in South Africa, and we've seen that with the vote of no confidence, that those people who got rid of Zuma probably thought, even all when those motions were being brought before Parliament, that he should go, but they're not going to do it because it was raised by the DA. So what I'm saying is, even though uh, the DA was raising this to score political points, it's still something important to raise. Uh, the ANC should not have cared who raised this. It should have been an opportunity for them to talk about uh, what had happened. However, that wasn't the first time that this matter was raised. At the TRC, there were some feminists, some, some, some academics, who at the last minute made a submission to the TRC to say, you've got to listen to these stories because these women are coming to us. And the TRC did not really make provision for that. So that's why I'm saying it's not just Jacob Zuma, it's masculinity, it's power that has been on trial because no time was afforded for, for women to be, uh, to be, to be protected and, um, and to be heard. And also, you've got to consider that some of the people who perpetrated uh, this, these acts of violence were already in power in a democratic South Africa. And I'm talking both from the National Party and the ANC. So a lot of women just walked away. They were too scared. They didn't know who to approach. And I use also Togoza, where there was violence in the Togoza hostels. There are a lot of women who were raped there, and those ones tried to take action. They walked to the TRC offices, they tried to protest, but nobody would hear them. And I think, Adrian, it's about the mirror as well, because if the men who make the decisions have to open the door for these stories, have to provide a platform for these stories to come out, then they too will be looked at, they too will be on trial. But I found something that um, actually broke my heart. I'm not in any way suggesting that gender-based violence should be fought by women alone. Everybody who cares about human rights and liberties should care about uh, gender-based violence. But every time I spoke to an ANC veteran, a female ANC veteran, about sexual violence in the camps. They were very conflicted because loyalty to the party was huge. It was huge. And what broke my heart about it is that why, are you, why is there this contestation in your head that you, by talk, speaking up for yourself and other women, it means a betrayal of the women, mm. of, the, of the movement. And some of them felt that so many people paid a price, some price, whether you lost a son or a, a, a daughter, whatever. So maybe for me, the price I had to pay was with my body. And it's a horrible position um, uh, to, 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 be, to be put in. And then I also met a category of ANC women who were in Umkonto with Siswe, who, who know even now that their abuses did happen, but they don't want their contribution to be reduced to that. Many of them made a contribution I mean, Tandi Mudise, some of the things that she got away with as a, as, a, as a soldier, she was formidable, but she also experienced sexual violence. So what I'm saying is this, that women played such a pivotal role in Mkonto Sizwe. So there are those who don't want their story recorded as one of abuse only. In fact, Tenji Wemtincho, uh, and, and again, I don't, I'm going about this in a roundabout way, but I'm trying for, to, to, for us to reflect on the complexity of human emotion. We never just feel one thing. Tenji Wemtincho is a loyal member of the ANC. She's a trained soldier. And many say she's one of those principled old guards of the ANC. She has spoken publicly about sexual abuse and how she was nearly raped at a camp. But last year when I spoke to her, 
she, she was conflicted. It was like our movement is under attack. So if I can help protect my movement by not speaking my story, then I will. So now I've, I'm finding a category of MK soldiers who are determined to prove to everyone that we had agency, we were worthy members of Mkonto Wesi, so we don't want to talk about this rape thing. I can't remember your question, but I... <laughs> no, no, you, it's a fantastic answer. But, but uh, I remember, I recall a, a discussion you had with Fizikile as well about this issue and about her rapes in exile, and where you actually asked her that she thought this was going to be dealt with. Mm. And the answer, without trying to quote her, because I can't remember the direct words, was something along the lines of, I thought it would be dealt with later, mm. or that the justice would happen later. We must first fight the struggle now against mm. apartheid. Mm. And then those things will be dealt with. But it yeah. seemingly hasn't happened. A lot of pain was deferred, basically. And I think we are at that point again uh, with this little presidency and the land question and race relations in the country. I think 94 presented a particular moment. Uh, it's become quite fashionable to criticize Mandela and everybody who was there in that room negotiating, but I think they did the best that they could with the tools at their disposal. But perhaps right now there are conversations to be heard about, to be had about what was deferred in 1994, what was delayed. Coming back to the ANC woman that you interviewed in your book, there's this, also this narrative of, um, that, that you call the flowers of the revolution, <laughs> where, where ANC, very ANC woman leaders um, preferred that narrative yeah. um, above um, talking about sexual yeah. abuse and trying to do something about it. And it's those ones who get very irritated when we ask about the power relations in ANC camps, when we ask about the MK commanders who wanted sexual favors in return for an extra meal, or um, a scholarship. And those camps were soul-destroying because there's very little that went on. I mean, Oliver Tambo ran the NC as he had to with a, what's the expression, the, an iron... You're all saying different things. <laughs> an iron fist, thank you. I beg your pardon. So he did run the ANC. So there was a lot of secrecy and control. So you'll find that the rank and file didn't quite know what was happening. I mean, you are 16 years old, you've skipped the country to go, and you think there's this big war that's in your face, and you're going to be, you know, this heroic na narrative that's going on. And then you get there, and you're whiling away time. Your parents don't know where you are. You are 17 years old, 18 years old, you're not allowed alcohol, you're not allowed to smoke, so you steal those things because the commanders, of course, who tell you not to drink, come back to the camp drunk and they hit on the women. It was, it was chaotic, there was some chaos. Uh, but some of the, 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 the MK soldiers who were lucky enough to have the right surname and be sent to school, and I'm not in any way suggesting that people like Lindy Sisulu didn't earn their stripes. They probably did. But she was a Sisulu. Nobody was going to close the door to a Sisulu girl. Uh, there are a few others I'll, that I'll think of. The Chopers, for example. Uh, Mark Chopper was a very senior SACP and MK, and he was respected by the rank and file. Uh, Gertrude Chopper, his wife, was also a formidable uh, icon. So their children were never going to be treated the same way as everybody else. I suppose that's how life works. So those are the girls who went to school, got an education, and uh, even military training. So they were called flowers of the revolution. And a lot of ANC women are very proud of this flowers of the revolution. But putting on my feminist hat, even that is quite uh, problematic because it means that they're not equals. There's something to be taken care of, to be nurtured, or even picked and abused as one would um, a flower sometimes, right? I want us to bring the issue home and literally to this town. Mm. So um, 
let's talk about the phenomenon of rape culture. Mm. Um, on the same campus we are sitting on today, a number of women students have been raped over the past few years. Mm. The term rape culture only became popular in the last, two, last year or two, but I still get the feeling that people, particularly men, struggle or are unwilling to robustly interrogate the scourge. Mm. What is your definition of rape culture and what can all of us, specifically the men, do to bring it to an end? Mm. And you know, Adrian, I, I do want to, I know you're asking, you know, the case study is, mm. is, is um, a still in Bosch, but look at what's happened in Hollywood. Uh, who would have thought? Well, we're not surprised because we, we read up about this and we understand that this is a global uh, phenomenon. To think that all those beautiful, rich women all these years were too scared to come, up, come out. What of us mere mortals? Uh, I think that it's, it's a lot of work that needs to be done. I think the easiest thing is to ask people to speak out. But what are the consequences of that? And to what extent does that change behavior? More than anything, it creates solidarity amongst women. But then what? And I actually don't know, Adrian. I've run out of answers mm. because I think that the male role models who could persuade men to think differently about themselves, to imagine a different identity, are not doing so. Let me give you an example. I've covered a lot of political rallies as a reporter. I've never heard Ezwelin Zima Vavi, or okay, Julius now, because the EFF uh, fees must fall, uh, students are forcing him to think about uh, intersectionality and gender. He's saying the right things now because the, there's some EFF students who experienced abuse and are, are talking to him. But if, you, if all these men who have these powerful platforms, a state of the nation address, for example, why is that not a big theme? I would like to believe Zuma listened to me once because I wrote to him an open letter about five years ago to say, prioritize this. Tell us about the special sexual offenses uh, units and all of that. It was there in his speech, but nothing happened because people are so drunk with power. Even the women in the NC, busy uh, you know, uh, uh, taking care of themselves and protecting their own positions, that this is not, an, this is not anything urgent. So all I'm saying is this, that if the people who have the platforms don't talk about it, and it's just the activists who are talking about it, it's like there are these women making a noise again. What stops Cyril Ramaphosa from speaking? What stops Zuelin Zimavavi, Julius, Musi Maimani, Bantu Holomisa, as they go and campaign in different uh, constituencies in rural areas? Why is this not something that they want uh, that, that they want to tackle. Uh, Cyril Ramaphosa appointing Batabile Lamini to the Ministry of Women. What does that say? It may be tactically, and I mean, we can skin out about what he was doing there uh, and the future of that ministry. But the fact of the matter is that living in a country such as ours, that's not a ministry, that's not a portfolio that you play with. You either have it and you treat it with the seriousness it deserves, or you don't have it at all. You don't strategically place someone there because you hope next year you're going to get rid of them. Whatever it is that he was doing, for me, symbolically, it's, 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 it's a failure on his part. So, Adrian, to answer your question, I really think that women have spoken enough. We really have. We've marched, we've written, we react, we listen to men phoning radio stations saying this is outrageous. You, you, you're all saying the right things, but you're not doing it. It's not in our faces. We don't see men in our country taking it up with the seriousness that it deserves. And I'm not talking about marches or anything like that. But perhaps for me and the women in my circles, 
it's such an unavoidable topic. If, we, if I were to spend three hours with my girlfriends drinking wine, within a few minutes, it will come up somehow. It's so enough, we can't escape it. So I think for men, you react to a story that you've read about or you heard on the radio, but I don't think it's something that makes you toss and turn at night. So much so that when you're in a network of, 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 of other males, that you would try and be a role model or persuade them or reflect on what it means to be a South African man and be part of such a, a system that is visiting so much violence um, uh, towards children and, and, and women. So I do think that men need to, uh, to step up. But so we've all heard the stories that you're talking about when, you, when the girlfriends drink wine, we know whose ex-husbands and boyfriends abuse them. I do, think, do you think there's value in, obviously, in talking and exposing this? And, and, and I think this is where Fezekiel is going to the police, opening a case. I mean, you ask her a lot about why she did it. You interrogate all the rumors about honey traps and Ronnie Casseroles mm. setting her up to, mm. um, to get back to Jacob Zuma. Um, it was not an easy thing for her, but she still did it. And, at the, and, exactly. and I mean, you, you end your book, I'm not jumping ahead now, but you end your book by saying that she stood up for all the mm. women and children. And it links to your first question about why I felt I needed to write the book, apart from the fact that it was such an important story. I did want to thank her for what she did for so many women. It's like the first woman who blew the whistle on, uh, uh, who's that disgusting man from Hollywood? What's his Harvey name? Weinstein. Weinstein. The first woman who did that. And then one after the other, they came. And I find that uh, the system, if the system is made up of people, would react with, with such cynicism, like, oh, why are they all coming up now? Mm. Well, because someone is giving you courage mm. to come up now. Bill Cosby. Uh, you know, so what I'm saying is we mustn't underestimate what Fezegile Kuzwayo did for South African women. However, the reason it didn't take off is because Zuma didn't fall. If Zuma had fallen then, I think there would have been a lot more women and more uh, and over challenge to the rape culture. It was an opportunity that she created, mm. but it lost steam because Zuma didn't fall. Instead, he was elevated, he was adored, he was deified by his fans. So if you're a woman and you watch what Fezegile did, and you see this man just rise and rise and rise, who's gonna come up after that? Who's gonna come out? Mm. Nobody will. So I think that she created an opportunity. She attempted to open the door for so many women, but many were put off and discouraged by what they saw as the rise of this violent man. And you know, the funny thing about Jacob Zuma is that, it's, it's not funny at all, but is that a lot of his comrades know stuff about him. They know that he was a pest in exile. He stole people's money. He was dishonest. They know it. And you can quote me on that. They know. They skin it about him. You know? And um, one comrade told me a story of how Oliver Tambo put a rule that we may not make, you may not make personal telephone calls when the phone first came. You can't make telephone calls. You know, you can't compromise security. But there was Zuma, especially on Saturday, speaking to one, and that's how he sits, speaking to one girlfriend after another for prolonged periods, compromising the security. So no, I'm trying to say no discipline. And it's that those little things that demonstrate a person's um, personality, your values. There's a rule, there are lives at stake. You are told by the leader, don't do this, don't do this. But he, he, he always goes for what he wants and what fulfills him. And his comrades knew that. 
they knew that, which is why when today some of them are saying stuff, we can't hear them. <laughs> we can't hear them precisely because they knew what kind of man he was when, um, when they elected him. But having said that, having said that, generally men in South Africa need to do some deep, deep reflections. Sticking to men and sticking to Stellenbosch, the law faculty is just right next door. So I want to talk a bit about the law and masculinity. Uh, um, in your book, you remark that the rap trial is a very male-dominated affair, not only because of the characters involved, um, but because of the questions that were asked and the format the trial took. And you make the case that Fisichilla was othered mm. by this male-dominated trial. Do you believe the law as we know it favors men, and what can we do? I'm sure there are lawyers, law lecturers, maybe even judges in the room today. How can we do to change this? Mm. You know, I was very careful when it comes to the legal stuff because I'm not a lawyer. I consulted extensively. And Karin de Beer, who was the prosecutor, uh, agrees with me that Kemp J. Kemp got away with a lot. For various reasons, we won't bore you with the details, the judge allowed some interrogation of Fezega's sexual history. But it wasn't meant to be a sexual history. It was meant to be... So, so, so the allegation was that she has a history of falsely accusing men of rape. Fine. There was nothing Karin could do but allow her to be interrogated on those cases alone where she allegedly falsely accused men of rape. And I think, as a reasonable person, when I read that, I think that's reasonable. That's reasonable. But her entire sexual history was uh, spoken about in court. Her entire sexual history. Even the cases where she consented, where she didn't deny consent. And I think what, what was the purpose of that if not to present as, her as a certain type of, of woman? So I, I'm, I'm not sure, but somebody sent me an article where that provision was, was, was challenged or something like that, that a rape victim may not be... Uh, questioned about their sexual history and so on. So there, are, there is progress. There is progress. Um, I think from a, a, a legal point of view, I don't know if much can be done to change anything. I have great respect for our courts. I don't think that they deliberately are set up to compromise, uh, to compromise women. I think what happened in that particular trial was that the person who was on trial had a lot of resources at his disposal. Uh, from police who were working with him, from uh, you know, security that was spying on, on certain witnesses. There's a lot that was going on there that perhaps the courts didn't have a choice but to rule in a certain way in certain areas because Fezegile was unsophisticated in many areas. She was innocent. She was, she was overwhelmed. And so I do think that this case is unique because of the person who was involved and the person who, has, who had access to the kind of power that um, a, a reasonable person, a, a, norm, a lay person, would not, doesn't have. But I think the Sexual Offences Act, I mean, we've got great laws in, in our country. And uh, the, the activists that I've spoken to say it cannot be improved any further. It, had bro it has broadened the definition of rape, the definition of sexual violence. So we're doing well in, in that regard. But I think for me, it is... It, it is the attitudes, uh, the, the cultures, the way we are socialized, because laws exist to protect us, but if we come to the law with certain belief systems mm. and, and, and all of that, mm. then it renders it obsolete. Yep. You grappled with this issue of law mm. and justice, yeah. and you conclude that they're not the same thing necessarily. No, they're not, and I think I was um, vindicated by um, uh, Pierre de Foss, who is a mm. constitutional law expert, 
and a constitutional judge whose name I won't mention because you know how sensitive they are, these judges, about <laughs> what you say publicly. And there's another very close friend of mine who is uh, a high court judge, and I consulted her as well. And I, I asked them, do you think I could, my instincts tell me I should go there, but I'm too scared because I'm not a lawyer. I don't want this backlash afterwards. And they, when I explained what I was thinking, they said, absolutely, go for it. And I think that Pierre de Foss puts it so, um, in such an elegant way and an accessible way for us lay people, says, uh, you know, just because he says that we, are, we, we don't have an obligation to pronounce someone innocent. You, you know how even politicians like to say um, innocent until proven guilty? And he says that's not it. No. The presiding officer must presume you are innocent if you are appearing before him or her, must presume that you are innocent until the court, until you are proven guilty. But we, uh, outside of that court system, don't have such an obligation uh, to, to you. And also, there are a whole lot of areas of our lives that were not on trial at that trial, but should have been. For example, Jacob Zuma, even if he's not guilty of rape, he's guilty of something. He's guilty of a lot of things. He claims to be a traditionalist, uh, somebody who embraces culture. There's no culture in the world that allows him to do what he did. He made so many outrageous claims about the Zulu culture, claims that are just not true. So I'm saying if the, courts was, if the court was concerned with that, then the judge would have pronounced on those matters as well. But it wasn't. It was about what can be proven. And in the end, Fezegile could not prove that this had happened. And perhaps we need that as a society. We need that as a society. Otherwise, even innocent people would be, uh, would be condemned. But what I'm trying to get at was that the moral questions were not uh, relevant uh, to, to, to the trial. Uh, and for me, that is a lack of, 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 of justice. Uh, there are many ways in which you can manipulate the system. For example, uh, I think Jacob Zuma's command of the English language is, is good enough for him to have conducted the trial uh, in, in, in English. But it's a power play like that, I mean, and I know that uh, the angry people would say I, I, we should be using our language, and of, of course I, I, I believe in that and I support that. That's not an argument about the inferiority of African language. I would never, ever argue something like that. But I'm saying this is somebody who gives a state of the nation address year in and year out in English. He goes to the AU. He, but when, when it came to the crux, he went to Zulu, not because he's more comfortable in this Zulu, but it was a power thing. There are areas where the translator was battling and it, it, it just became all pathetic. So I think there are all sorts of dynamics that compromised justice uh, in, in, in my mind. And also the prosecutor, for example, the, the defense uh, advocate, Kem, Kem J. Kemp. I mean, he was cracking some not so funny jokes mm during cross-examination. And for me, that also compromises uh, uh, justice. There was a way in which uh, Fezega Kuzwayo was depicted. And that, for me, is a lack of justice. I feel that in the court, in the trial, it came down to what could be proven. And as a woman, I know, having spoken to so many survivors of sexual violence, that there's a lot that happens that they just cannot prove. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. Sticking to the law, you, you also struggle a lot in the book with the issue of consent. Mm. 
Um, and you are very critical about the way the court had certain requirements of the rape victim to prove that she did not give consent, yeah. mainly by saying no, mm. you, uttering the words no. You also in the book interviewed a fellow journalist, colleague, okay. uh, who told you about her chilling account of how Zuma forced himself uh, upon her and she struggled to say the words no. Mm. In the moment she could only say I was on my period mm. and she actually feels bad about that when she relays and breaks down mm. in the interview with you. Um, I think in the book you comment that the law does not accommodate the range of expressions, emotions that someone goes through when they are being sexually yeah. assaulted. I think there are many ways of saying no. And I, I think actually in Fezega's case, she did actually say no. Hmm. She actually did. But perhaps she didn't say no at a certain time. You know, so she was interrogated about, at that point, did you say no? At that point, did you say no? At the, and I think if she were lying, she would have said yes. Yes, yes, because there was no one there. But there is a point where she said no. But at another point during the, at the time, she didn't say no. And she was crucified on, on this. And also, I do think that uh, consent should be interrogated. Because if she regarded Jacob Zuma as a father figure, there's a different way in which you speak to a father figure than your own peers. I think that those things come to the fore when you are confused and you don't want to appear rude, you're not, you're not sure whether you're about to be violated or not. And she told me that there were a whole lot of questions in her head around what could have possibly given him the idea that I wanted this at that time. So, you know, again, going back to the justice uh, matter, it's that I, I felt that the court is a very cold place that is not accommodating the complexity of human uh, uh, behavior. And also, power relations in South Africa. I like to use the example of my domestic worker. I'm here in Stellenbosch. I've told them I'll be home around, around half past nine. If I'm not home by half past nine and I decide to go to a pub somewhere on my way home, I'm not going to find my domestic worker waiting for me at the door asking me where I was. Because the power relations in our home are such that I'm the one who does as she pleases. It's just a sense of decency and courtesy that you don't do certain things. But chances are, if she's late for work, as she walks down to my gate, she's very nervous about what the madam is going to say, right? Why is she nervous? Not because I'm, I'm going to yell at her or slap her. Or anything. It's because she recognizes her place in my life. I am the figure of authority in her life. So I have to be very careful about how I exercise that power. I think picking fights with people who are not equal to you uh, in terms of class, race even, income, education level. In South Africa, we ought to really reflect about the power that our identity um, prefers. Is there such a word? Prefer, prefer. Mm. Confers. Thank you. English is tough after two o'clock. <laughs> the power <laughs> On a Friday. That, uh, yeah, absolutely. So whether it's doctor-patient relationship, lawyer, client, there's certain power relations. In it, and, and when we point these out, people get very, very defensive. It doesn't mean that you are abusive or you, you, you are prejudiced, but it means that when that person looks at you, they don't see you as you see yourself, as a normal guy who doesn't abuse anyone. They see me as Ridi, who's educated, who can speak English, who's well-traveled, who's the madam. So there are certain barriers already uh, between us. So going back to the trial, it's not the court's place, perhaps, to take all of these um, 
into account. And I think Jacob Zuma was able to exploit his power and his authority over Fezega. There's three people I'd like us to quickly um, talk about before we, we close, close up. First is um, Mulangi Mpehu. Mulangi oh. Mpehu, the former head of crime intelligence from the police. Now, let's just to be clear, the head of crime intelligence... This is, this is the man who was in charge of protecting Fezekile, looking after, making sure she's safe, making sure she's in a comfortable space. Mm. And almost none of that happened. So, you know what? What happened in that trial is chilling. And again, I say Fezekile was so unsophisticated. But at the same time, I wonder how I would have reacted because I don't know how these things work. She thought the police were on her side. Why? Because in a normal country, in a normal society, police are there to protect you. So when they told her to speak to this journalist, don't speak to this one, do this, do this, she did exactly that. And then I, I, I must say there was a moment where I got so mad at her when the, the, there was a bodyguard, yes, Layla. Layla, who was meant to be looking after her, but then they told Fezegile that Layla will be recording your sessions with your advocate, don't tell your advocate, like, are you mad? That should have been the sign that these people are not on your side. So her sessions with Karin were all recorded. And of course, we can't make, um, we can't accuse anybody of, but somebody did something with those tapes. And we don't know where they are. Another set of Zuma tapes. Yeah. Not the Zuma tapes, <laughs> the other Zuma tapes. Tape, yeah. So there was that. And then even at the safe house, she was not safe at all because there were all sorts of intimidation tactics. The lights would go off and then the she'd find that her diary has been read. There were just so many things that happened. And I think for an innocent man, Zuma went to great lengths to intimidate Fezekile. He could have been more confident and relaxed knowing that she's lying and she, he'll, he'll walk. But, and, and also that they couldn't find the bed sheets they were washed almost immediately and on all of that. So there's a lot of, there are a lot of things that happened. And I think that the police are yet to account Absolutely. for their conduct during the trial. Another simple thing, I won't spoil, I'm not spoiling it for those who haven't read the book. The, the, the prosecution and the defense and the police agreed that when they enter court, they would use a particular entrance away from the crowd that was the mob that was basically ready to just lynch her. And when it came to that moment, she was marched right in front of those people so that when she reached court and took the stand, she was so rattled. She says to me she couldn't even spell her name. She was so nervous. You know, so... We were, we were outside court covering the trial and I remember the chanting, burn the bitch. Yeah. Um, and people like Zizi Kotwa has now turned 360 yeah. against President Zuma were the, um, some of the main chants. The second per person we have to talk about is Judge Van Amerwe. Um, you are very critical about the way he handled the trial, in particular his decision to allow the evidence about Fisikila's sexual history to be admitted as evidence. Do you think he was handpicked because of his conservatism? Because in your book, other jurists like retired constitutional court judge Zach Yacoub has severely criticized his judgment. Mm -hmm. and, and there's also a quote in your book that the judgment has never been used again in any other rape mm -hmm. trial. Do you think there was something sinister at play? You know what? I don't think so. I'll tell you why. Because you... Whatever, whatever you suspect about a person, when his or her colleagues tell you otherwise, you've got to jettison your own position. I've spoken to a lot of judges who don't believe that he was compromised in any way. 
they feel that he is, he's a conservative judge and conservatism is not a crime. We can criticize it, especially when we talk about gender and power. So I think he's guilty of conservatism and he's a product of his time and his background and, and, and all of that. But I don't think that he deliberately um, sabotaged the case or he was handpicked. And I'm told by judges um, that I've interviewed that our system is so solid, we have a reason to be confident that it leaves very little room for people to be handpicked in that uh, particular way. But even as they say this, they criticize the judgment. Um, they, they criticize the judgment itself. But there was something strange that, that happened because the judge who was meant to mm. preside over that was Mujabilu. Mm. Ooh, I promise I won't mention judges' names. I beg your pardon. No, but, but right it's, there. it's there. But I, I won't tell you what Mujabilu's opinion is about the outcome of the trial. Yakub is the one who's brave enough to own his position and say, I would have found him guilty. But until Mujabilu says that publicly, I don't want to go there. But Mujabilu was meant to be the one. And uh, Zondo, uh, Zondo was also next in line, but Zondo's sister has a child. Shongwe. Shongwe, I beg your pardon. Shongwe's sister has a child. Yes. And the funny thing is, I couldn't put that in. Shongwe didn't even know that... His sister had a child. Yeah, and it's a cousin's sister. It's not a sister-brother thing. So he was also surprised that he's not on the case because Zuma has told his team that, no, we are related somehow, and he was, uh, he was stunned. Now, come Bernard Mwepe, and Mujabilu is critical of how Mwepe handled this, in that Mwepe is the judge that ruled, you guys remember, Jan uh, uh, you, you were the reporters uh, uh, during this, the search. Search, Zuma, and Caesar, yes, search and yes. Mwepe is the one who signed off yes. on that. On some of it, yeah. Yeah, some of it. So Mwepe was concerned about being embroiled, anything that had a Zuma in it, he was concerned about being embroiled with it. Manbujapilo's argument was that, but if it wasn't illegal, if the law allowed him to make certain decisions and certain rulings, he, he, should just, he should have just done it. He shouldn't even have recused himself in the first place. So, so, so what I'm saying is there are a lot of politics amongst the judges themselves, but not one of them has expressed to me that Van der Merwe would have deliberately uh, acted um, uh, unethically. In this, in this matter. He ruled in the way that he felt was correct to rule. Just uh, maybe all the, all the a pit, not a pity, but it's better that a whole lot of judges are saying it's not being, nobody quotes this judgment and because it was so poor, according to... And there was definitely a connection with the conservatism between him and Jacob Zuma. In the end, he gave him this almost lecture, this poem of, you know, yeah, if... Um, if yeah. How to behave. The last person uh, we must quickly talk about is, is Karen the Beer, the prosecutor in the case. You write with lots of empathy about her role, how she tried to do her best, to do her best for Fizikile. Knowing what we know now, do you think she was the right person for the trial, or did the state need someone more aggressive, dare I say more masculine, like Harry Nell maybe, to go up against Kemp, Jack Kemp? And what does that tell us, tell us about the law? You know, I, I always feared, nobody's ever asked me this question, I always feared that somebody would because with my feminist hat, I'm saying Karin was exactly the right person to do it. Why not? But because it is my belief that that court reeked of patriarchy and um, uh, you know, uh, masculine authority across the racial and cultural lines, I wished then it had been someone like Echerinel, someone that the 
the judge would respect more hmm. someone who looked and sounded like uh, the judge. And with Karin as well, she got very sick, violently sick mm -hmm. during the cross-examination. And perhaps it was ambition on her part, and there's nothing wrong with a woman being ambitious, ambitious but I wonder if it would have been a better idea for her to defer to her, um, her fellow advocate, Broderick, yes. who also worked through the system, knew the system. But in terms of her intelligence, mm -hmm. her commitment, her expertise, there was nothing wrong with Karin DBA. It's just that when you lose a case, people start questioning you that you should have done this, you should have done that. Uh, Karin was the right person. She was senior enough. She was a senior. She was the, I can't remember the exact DPP position. Of, she was a DPP. Turbo, That's a very, yeah. senior, you don't get that overnight. And I think it was even before we demonstrated as a country a greater commitment to affirmative action. So it's not because she's a female that she got that. She was even her peers say that. But I do think that for some reason, during that week of cross-examination, she wasn't feeling well. So even as I say that I want to see, I love seeing women take charge in positions of authority, she was the right person for that reason. But given the stakes, what was at stake, and the odds being against Fezega and her team, perhaps Echerinel would have been um, the Rottweiler. <laughs> and, and Karin is petite and gentle, but she's, she's a brilliant advocate. That's what I'm hearing about her, and that's what I've encountered as well. Rita, I want to end with a quote from your book again, where you, um, what we spoke about earlier when um, Kemp J. Kemp questioned physically uh, extensively about his sexual behavior and sexual yeah. past. You write the following. I can just imagine the effect of this admission from Fez, the fact that she cannot remember all the people who had kissed, I think that's the mm. word he used. That I she cannot kiss between 1999 and 2005. I can just imagine the effect of this admission from Fez that she cannot really remember. In this world of skewed power relations and demands that women be pure and virtuous, her not remembering could mean only one thing, that she was a slut. In this world, women are supposed to, be re to remember every kiss, every touch, every encounter with a man, because such encounters are meant to be so few and so precious. There is an unwritten rule that women, who are, women are supposed to have sex with one man and that men, of course, can fuck wherever they want, whenever they want, and just as quickly move to another conquest without ever having to account for their conduct. In addition, society does not expect women to have meaningless, forgettable sex with equally forgettable males. This is why Fisichile's response was always going to receive a hostile reception from a hostile society. Are we ready for our Weinstein moment? <laughs> <laughs> Ready for? Our Harvey Weinstein moment in South Africa. In South Africa? Oh. Me too. Me too. You know what? We've had so many, I think. I think we didn't call them Me too, but we've had so many. But you know what, Adrian? I don't think that we throw in the towel. Somehow, in the United States, someone felt the time was right. And I've been especially impressed with the Fees Must Fall women leaders. Mm. Uh, there's a lot to criticize about that movement and uh, the violence sometimes, uh, the, the tactics, we can debate that, and I feel some of them uh, quote Fanon and don't locate him in, his, uh, in, in the correct space, but that's my opinion and we can debate that another day. But what they've been able to do is something that the NC Women's League has not been able to do. They have called out sexism within the movement. They have isolated male fallists 
who are guilty of violence against women. They have demanded that we will not march with you for fees when you are busy with transgressions in so many areas. And they've been vocal about who's trash and who isn't. Uh, so I do think that from, from that perspective, their activism is a challenge for us as society and also uh, an opportunity. I just hope that they get the right support so that life doesn't suck the, the energy and the passion out of them. But I do think that we will have our Me Too moment. We've got some small victories in different corners. Sometimes we battle to coordinate. I, it, the, the most exhausting thing is to organize, and I admit this, a conference of women uh, talking about patriarchy and, and sexual violence because there's so many constituencies and everybody, it's, 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 it's overwhelming, but it must still be done. But I do think, and I'm hopeful, that we will have our moment as well. Ladies and gentlemen, really love. on your book, Adrian. <laughs> you see, I just messed up my mic. But let's try again. Um, there's five minutes left for questions from the audience. Um, can, I, can you take? Yeah, you, sure, take? Um, any hands, immediate questions? Yes, thank you, sir. Um, hello. Hi. 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 Um, one of the things which, which um, okay. came to me was the idea that um, perhaps we brought fees the limit to how much we can do with the law. The question I, I, I'm wondering is, I'll hear the analogy that if someone stole my wallet and I said they stole it, no one would question that they stole it. If when a woman says, he raped me, we, 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 we perpetually question it. What I ask is, why is it that we have, we have to be, would it, would it not be good if the law reflected that the fact that perhaps a woman's word that she was raped should be sufficient? And that is, yeah. Look, for me, for me personally, when a woman says she's been raped, I believe her until further notice. That's my immediate response. But I wonder whether the courts have the same latitude uh, to do that, because we need to be very careful as well not to send innocent people uh, to jail. Perhaps what we need to do is interrogate whether the Sexual Offences Act goes far enough in allowing other forms of, 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 of evidence. Uh, when we use the word, you know, what is, when we say what is the likelihood that something has happened, maybe to be a bit more imaginative in exploring that. And I don't think that it's, a, it's an abstract notion. The, examples in Fezega, the example in Fezega Kuzwa's book, the power relations between Fezega and, and Zuma, for me, it would have been enough if the court had even conceded that it was difficult for her because she was overwhelmed and she saw Zuma as, 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 as a father figure rather than uh, you know, reducing the, same, the whole thing to what is tangible and what can be proven and uh, what, what, what cannot be proven. I do think, and I have to defer to my learned colleagues who are very impressed with our Sexual Offences Act, but our biggest enemy in South Africa is our culture of rape 
and our attitude to sexual violence. Perhaps that's where we need to look first before we even get to the cause. Perhaps that's where the, the, the biggest, the heaviest burden lies. Most of the work needs to happen in that space rather than in the courts yet. One short question, thank you. Um, proving right is difficult, but not many people want to have a touch feminist on. Right, I think that's an important question, and I'll tell you, it's a very important question, and in fact, that's what I, want, I wanted to add uh, to your question, and I had forgotten uh, at that time, that our expectations of a rape scene and a rape victim are problematic, and also the profile of a rapist. So Zuma has so much money he can smell the presidency, why would he rape anybody? So we have, a cert we have certain beliefs in society. That's why I say our problems are in society rather than in the courts first. They are there too, but let's start here. So we seem to have a profile of a rapist. And if you don't fit that profile, you are innocent. And secondly, rape need to, the definition of rape is that it is violence, but I'm, I'm talking about violence that's so overt where you are bleeding, you've got scars, you've been beaten. If Fezegile Kuzwayo <coughs> had appeared in court like that or there were photographs of her taken immediately after bleeding and being beaten up, swollen, people would have believed that it had happened. But that's exactly what we're challenging, that uh, there isn't one way in which men rape. There isn't one picture of a rape victim and courts need to or perhaps as a society we need to broaden the scope of what constitutes uh, sexual violence. It isn't what we see on TV where there's this um, stranger who's chasing you or breaks into your home and I, I, I wonder why it's so difficult to imagine because a lot of children in particular are abused by people closest to them. So it also follows that even grown-ups, even women, would be abused by a man who is very, very close uh, to them. So um, the law is good, but is there an opportunity to interrogate how much, how far it can go in allowing those kind of subliminal, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I think you understand what I mean. English is difficult. <laughs> yeah, but I, I suppose... In, in, in allowing those, those sub subliminal uh, 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 presentations of violence that to the naked eye don't seem like violence, mm. but they are. Mm. In this era of Ramaphosa, we must end on time. So oh, thank you, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Don't let your guard down with Ramaphosa, <laughs> eh? I'm warning you.